Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, let's talk about the French government's recent announcement about overhauling the country's organization of research. President Emmanuel Macron claims these measures will cut down bureaucracy and place science at the heart of political decision-making. Yes, Diego. Quite a significant move, isn't it? This is being dubbed as the biggest shakeup to France's research system in about two decades. It includes the creation of a presidential science council, which will be a group of 12 leading scientists advising the president on research strategy and key issues facing scientists. Macron's billion euro plan was presented to researchers, politicians, and business leaders at the Elysee Palace. Alain Fischer, president of the French Academy of Sciences, noted that it's rare for a French president to speak about science at such length and in such detail. It seems Macron is taking the concerns of the scientific community seriously. And Macron's plans are indeed ambitious. Over the next 18 months, the country's seven national research institutes will be transformed into program agencies, each responsible for the strategy and coordination of all research on a particular theme. This is a significant shift from the current system where research in each discipline is scattered across various public institutions. Right? For example, the Alternative Energies and Atomic Energy Commission will oversee all research on low-carbon energy technology, digital systems, and infrastructure. The Biomedical Institute in CIRM will be in charge of health research, and the National Research Agency, CNRS, will oversee marine, climate, and biodiversity research in collaboration with other institutes. Macron also promised further reforms to improve the autonomy of universities, giving them oversight of university-based research groups that include researchers from the national agencies. He also pledged measures to save researchers time, such as cutting the number of quality assessments, making grant funding decisions within six months instead of a year, and encouraging collaborations between universities and public research institutions. This is a response to the long-standing complaint about the bureaucratic burden in France. Yes, but not everyone is pleased with these plans. Patrick Lemaire, a biologist at the University of Montpellier, criticized Macron's announcements as purely ideological and divorced from reality. He argued that the revolution of transforming research institutions into mere funding bodies and transferring their scientific staff to universities will not solve the problem. Indeed, Lemaire added that the plan does not adequately address the complexity of the funding labyrinth that researchers must navigate. He's concerned about diverting scientists from their work with ill-planned and controversial policies. Well, it's a complex issue for sure. Pierre Rochette, a geophysics researcher at Aix-Marseille University, also expressed concerns, saying that institutes like the CNRS face more immediate issues, such as overly complicated systems and dysfunctional software that won't be solved by high-level reforms. It's clear that this overhaul is a significant move and has stirred up a lot of debate. As with any major change, there will be supporters and critics, it's crucial to keep the conversation going and ensure that the changes truly benefit the research community and ultimately the scientific advancements we all depend on. While we're on the subject of groundbreaking research and its implications, let's shift our focus to another significant scientific concern. A recent report by over 200 researchers has brought the world's attention 
to the looming threat of irreversible tipping points due to climate change. This report, which was presented at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, sheds light on how these tipping points could drastically affect our natural systems and ultimately human survival. Charlotte, the world is teetering on the edge of numerous tipping points due to climate change, according to a recent report by over 200 researchers. These tipping points, once crossed, could lead to irreversible effects on our natural systems, which are vital for human survival. That's right, Diego. And despite some scientists expressing caution about overemphasizing these tipping points due to difficulties in defining and assessing risks, there's a growing consensus that these risks are real and escalating with rising global temperatures. Tim Lenton, a climate scientist at the University of Exeter who led the report, says that these tipping points pose threats of a magnitude that humanity has never faced before. The report was released at the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP28, in Dubai. Yes, and it's worth noting that other data released at COP28 highlight the extent of the challenge we're facing. This year's global fossil fuel emissions are set to hit a record high, and current pledges to cut emissions might still allow global temperatures to rise to 2.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2100. The report also assesses 26 potential climate tipping points. The immediate danger lies with the world's coral reefs, already threatened at current warming levels. Ice sheets in Greenland and West Antarctica are also at risk of an irreversible collapse that could significantly boost sea levels. And with just a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in warming, northern forests, mangroves, and other coastal ecosystems are at risk. Large parts of the Amazon rainforest could be replaced by savanna with just a 2 degrees Celsius increase, disrupting life across South America and leading to even more carbon being released into the atmosphere. Manjana Milkorite, a political scientist and co-author of the report, emphasizes that considering these tipping points makes immediate action even more critical. Humanity's decisions in the next few decades could affect life on the planet for thousands of years, she says. However, some researchers question whether focusing on tipping points makes a difference from a social and political standpoint. Michael Oppenheimer, a climate scientist at Princeton University, suspects that the increasing frequency of extreme weather events might be more likely to stimulate action than warnings of potential climate catastrophes. That's a valid point, but the report also provides a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? It lists potential positive tipping points in social, political, and economic systems, which could result in significant benefits for the climate if crossed. Indeed, we're already seeing evidence of one such positive tipping point as the declining costs of wind and solar power are driving investments away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy. But as Tim Lenton says, the incremental policies pursued by governments so far aren't enough. He's right. We need to identify and trigger some positive tipping points that accelerate action down an alternative pathway. It's a monumental task, but one that humanity can't afford to ignore. From the potential perils and hopes of climate tipping points, let's now delve into another pressing issue related to our climate crisis. This time, we're looking at how investments, a driving force in our global economy, are shaping our relationship with nature and, consequently, our future on this planet. It seems that despite the urgent call for climate-friendly initiatives, 
there's a disturbing imbalance in the way we're allocating our resources. Let's shift gears to the climate crisis. The UN has warned that investments are heavily tilted towards activities that harm nature, despite the pressing need for climate-friendly initiatives. Charlotte, what are your thoughts on this? It's a troubling scenario, Diego. The UN Environment Program estimates that investments in projects promoting a stable climate and healthy land are 30 times lower than those harming nature. And this was a key point of discussion at the recent COP28 climate summit. Indeed, and former Irish President Mary Robinson, a prominent climate advocate, was one of the voices at the summit. She emphasized the need for governments to take science more seriously, especially when it comes to doubt. Exactly, Diego. Especially when it comes to nature-based solutions to the climate crisis. She made an interesting comparison, saying that governments that did well during the COVID pandemic were those that listened to their chief medical officers and made tough decisions early on. It's a powerful analogy. Robinson also reflected on her own journey, admitting that during her presidency from 1990 to 1997, climate wasn't an issue in Ireland. It was only when she became the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights that she grasped the severity of the crisis. And even then, she wasn't clear on how it impacted her work. It was only when she started working in African countries that she saw the human rights impact of climate change, and this led her to focus on climate justice. Right, not just climate change, but climate justice. Robinson is among those pushing for a strong global goal on adaptation, or GGA, at COP28. But it's been slow going, hasn't it? It certainly has, Diego. The idea of a GGA was established under the Paris Agreement in 2015, but it's still not properly defined. Unlike the 1.5 degrees temperature limit, it's less clear what an adaptation target would look like. And the finance aspect is a sticking point. Robinson warned that we're far from where we should be on finance. Money is going towards subsidizing what's harming us rather than restoring our relationship with nature. It's a question of science indeed. Robinson argues that we need a global adaptation target because countries lack the necessary science. It's a potent reminder that science should be at the forefront of our efforts to combat the climate crisis. Absolutely, Charlotte. The stakes are high and the need for science-based, nature-friendly solutions has never been more urgent. From the global scale of climate change and the urgent need for science-based solutions, let's now narrow our focus to the urban landscapes where over half the world's population resides. A new initiative was announced at the recent COP28 that aims to incorporate scientific targets into city planning. Stay tuned as we delve into the city's science-based targets for nature program. Diego, today we're discussing a new initiative that aims to incorporate science-based targets into city planning. It's called the City's Science-Based Targets for Nature program, and it was announced at COP28. Interesting, Charlotte. So this program is designed to assist cities in managing land and water, protecting biodiversity, and enhancing climate resilience. The plan is to roll this out over the next 18 months, right? Exactly, Diego. By spring 2025, initial guidance for cities should be available. It's a collaborative effort involving city networks, research institutions, and advisory organizations. The aim is to integrate nature into urban policy agendas, including setting clear targets for creating and preserving green and blue spaces. It sounds like a significant step forward. Cities are major drivers of environmental impact, aren't they? 
with over half the global population living in cities, and that number expected to rise to 68% by 2050, it's crucial to align the impacts of cities with what nature can sustain. Absolutely, Diego. And let's not forget, the coming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework set a global goal of halting and reversing biodiversity loss by 2030. Cities are seen as essential catalysts for change, so setting targets for them is vital. Right, and prior to COP28, Maya Kuttner of CDP mentioned that sustainable and resilient infrastructure is the cornerstone of tangible climate action. There's a call for national governments, the private sector, and financial institutions to support cities, especially in the global south. And that's a key point. Diego, there's a need for transparency and environmental data from cities to encourage investment. This will enable meaningful action and the creation of sustainable urban areas. On that note, Charlotte, there's also a joint outcome statement on urbanization and climate change. It's a 10-point plan to boost the inclusion of cities in the decision-making process on climate change, drive multi-level climate action, and accelerate the deployment of urban climate finance. A critical move, Diego. Given that 90% of cities are threatened by rising sea levels and storms, urban areas typically have temperatures 10 degrees higher than rural areas, exposing residents to extreme heat. Maimouna Mode Sharif of UN Habitat emphasized the importance of supporting urban environments to withstand climate challenges. Right, Charlotte. Despite cities contributing over 70% of CO2 emissions, immediate action could bring their emissions down to near net zero. But finance remains a critical bottleneck. Only a small percentage of climate finance is allocated to adaptation and resilience, and even less reaches the local level. So it's clear, Diego, that while cities play a significant role in climate action, further support and investment are needed to ensure they can effectively respond to the climate crisis. Absolutely, Charlotte. It's a complex issue, but initiatives like the Cities Science-Based Targets for Nature program are certainly steps in the right direction.